This is The Guardian. I'm Grace Dent and this is Comfort Eating from The Guardian. A podcast where we pay homage to the lesser celebrated foods in life. Because even as a restaurant critic, I believe the food that matters most is often that snack you cobble together when you're curled up on the sofa. Each week, I ask my guest to lift the lid on what comfort foods have seen them through their lives. Because you can tell a lot about a person from what they eat behind closed doors. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, friends. Yes, it's me. And yes, you find me in my kitchen. It is cold and absolutely disgustingly wet outside today. Proper soak to your bones kind of weather. Can you hear my guttering? Splashing down. Someone needs to go up there with a stepladder. Tell you what, it's not going to be me. I am absolutely starving and I don't have time for much. But you know what I do have time for? Popcorn. Stick it in the microwave. I'm sure I can get a whole bowl of it down my face before she arrives. Joining me today is something of a personal hero. She's the writer, Georgia Pritchett. If you haven't heard her name, you are almost sure to have laughed at her jokes and been entertained by the characters she dreams up. That is, if you've ever watched shows such as The Thick of It, Veep, Have I Got News For You, Spitting Image and The Shrink Next Door. Oh, hang on. And yes, a little show you probably haven't heard of. It's called Succession. So it never stops being exciting when it begins. Last year, George's memoir, My Mess is a Bit of a Life, was published, documenting her life from anxious schoolgirl to celebrated TV wordsmith and the trials, the tribulations and adventures that have come with it. I am looking forward to getting to know the genius behind all my biggest TV-based belly laughs and hearing all about the journey into the most creative writing rooms on the planet, the people she's met, the places she's been, and of course, the snacks she's eaten along the way. Lunch is served. Hot. That's so good. Sweet and salty. That's what you need. Georgia Pritchard, welcome to Comfort Eating. Thank you so much. I'm, my tummy's rumbling. I'm ready. <laughs> I feel like I've dragged you out of your own house on the most disgusting, drizzly day. You have literally done that. Yes, that's why it feels like that. (laughs) (laughs) You are a writer for TV, but you once said that in another life, you might have been a restaurant reviewer. 
Yes, that would be my dream job. I mean, first of all, get off my patch. <laughs> no, I always think that to be a restaurant critic, you need to be able to pull 500 words out of your ass, basically, about eating pasta in a plain white room. <laughs> Let's put you to the test. Can I have two beautiful sentences about the comfort food that you've brought in today? And no pressure, but these will be the pull quotes at the top of the article <laughs> that will bring in, that will bring in the clicks that will make or break your career. Fair enough. So what we are about to experience is, I would say, the culinary version of waving your family goodbye at an airport. It's a very emotional experience. Okay. But also, at the same time, perhaps running towards your favourite pet, the culinary experience <laughs> of that. It's, there's both. It's such a joyous and beautiful thing we're about to do. Do you know something? That is absolutely beautiful. <laughs> and I'm so annoyed because I thought I'd put you on the spot. <laughs> right, okay. Please reveal the snack. Right. I don't know what this is. With a flourish. Oh my it god! Is oh, peanut right. butter and jam. It, which it's uh, is a I'm thing emotional. of beauty. <laughs> I love the fact that we're both staring at it, just like <laughs> as if you've just got got a Matisse or something. <laughs> just, just it is a very so, beautiful sight. It's like, can I go in? Please go in. Yes. So I, the key is, it's so bread, much peanut cheap butter. bread that will survive a nuclear apocalypse. Mm crunchy peanut butter and then raspberry jam don't mm. talk to me about strawberry jam i'll get cross why has it got to be raspberry i think it's the merlot of jams <laughs> <laughs> more fruity yeah. heavier it has to be crunchy mm. peanut butter yeah it? when i was little it felt like impossibly glamorous you know what would they call it P pb and j mm. Mm. And also kind of slight madness, the thought that you would make this in the north of England. <laughs> but once you get into it, yeah. it's one of those snacks that is, um, I always say, compelling. Yes. Because it, you get into it mm. like a lovely story. Mm. Mm -hmm. Sweet and savoury. Oh. It's oh. a meal, basically. We're not, we're going to barely be able to speak because our mouths will be claggy, but it's worth it. When would you eat this? I so love food and I'm so obsessed with food that sometimes I eat before I go out for dinner so as not to terrify my <laughs> dining partner <laughs> because I get so urgent and eat so much that a bit like the sort of food equivalent of that bit in There's Something About Mary where he has a quick wank before a date. <laughs> I sometimes eat so that I can function as a normal human being <laughs> at a dinner and not just go silent and desperate and just and then eat like a pig too quickly. I love that you have a food wank before you go. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's that I will never be able to eat that in the same way ever again. <laughs> You were born in London in 1968. You grew up in Elephant and Castle in South London with your parents, Josephine and Oliver, and your big brother, Matt. 
set me the scene at home. Who was doing the cooking and what were you eating? Well, I'm I'm hoping that this podcast might give hope to um, parents like me who have children who are incredibly picky eaters slash food morons because I was the pickiest eater and I didn't like any food and I was a complete nightmare and now I'm obsessed with food. I eat all food and can hardly talk of anything else. So I ate exclusively really sweets, blackjacks, jelly foam mushrooms, Mm. sherbet, dip dabs, all of those. Sometimes I'd have neat Ribena. I had the sweetest tooth. Why why I aren't diabetic already, I don't know. I only drank lemonade for breakfast, lunch and dinner. No water or juice. What did your parents say about this? I think I just broke them quite quickly. So I think there is that thing as a parent where you think, my children will eat so healthily and then you're just desperate for them to eat anything at all and you suddenly find that all your... Principles have gone. And the sort of tragedy of it is, is my dad is a brilliant cook. He's, uh, we we call him the little chef because he's quite small. He's still a brilliant cook, yeah. still cooks most of my food. I go around there with my Tupperware. And I, it was just lost on me. He was making these fantastic f- meals and I was, I didn't like meat. I didn't like vegetables. I didn't like potatoes. I didn't like anything. You were just eating those spongy mushrooms yeah. that are pink and white. That yeah. You're- I mean, they are good. They are good. And, um, you know, a couple of lolly gobble chop bombs every day. <laughs> a lolly gobble chop <laughs> What was the house like where, where you lived? We lived in a lovely square, which was great. So all the families, we could sort of see each other and we all sort of ran around in a sort of feral pack all day, every day. And so that was great. It's so formative that, you know, for people our age that feral pack Mm. and being out all the time yeah you leave the front door in the morning yeah and then you just spend you've gone like 12 hours 12 hours (laughs) yeah like breaking into someone's old shed on their allotment (laughs) yes reading an adult magazine that you found (laughs) i went to this fantastic primary school as well which wouldn't be allowed these days but sort of hippie uh school in the 70s where you only had to go in if you felt it was right for you to go in that day and I quite often felt it was right for me to stay at home and play with the dog but when you did go in you called the teachers by their first names Howard used to drive me in and home there and home on his back of his motorbike we never did lessons we just sort of expressed ourselves through finger painting the closest I got to doing maths was Jean would send me out to buy her cigarettes and I had to try and come back with the right change. And then, like, once a term, Henry, the headmaster, would suddenly go, oh, shit, let, let's have a lesson and sort of gather the whole school into the hall. And we'd usually do the plague, sometimes triangles, <laughs> but really often we'd he'd teach us how to write haikus and he seemed determined that if we learnt nothing else by the age of 11, we would have mastered the Japanese short form of poetry. If I'd gone to your school and they'd let me go whenever I felt like it, I would put in a solid two days a month. (laughs) Yeah. This school policy must have been trying to make you self-reliant and grown up. I guess... 
we all have a moment where we suddenly consider ourselves independent. When was yours? When I came to switch to secondary school at 11, I thought, I'm a woman now. And I, to celebrate this fact, I saved my pocket money up and I took myself to Wimpy in shopping centre at Elephant and Castle and I ate alone because I thought that was a sign of being grown up. I mean, yeah, like it is. <laughs> it is. I, I think that it takes massive grit to do that. Most people can't do it now when they're, <laughs> at, you know, adults. Yeah. What did you order? I had a burger and a banana milkshake, I think. Yeah, sophisticated. Some some kind of queen. Yeah. And I just went to the pick and mix at Woolworths. Probably got some of those licorice laces, you know. Let's talk about teenage Georgia. (laughs) How would you describe those years? Well, then I went to quite a rough school in Deptford. So that was a bit of a wake-up call. And where you did have to go in every day, it was outrageous. And you literally had to, like, turn up to lessons and, yeah, wear a uniform. Absolutely unreasonable. I mean, that it must have been a shock to the system. It was a complete culture shock. And then I think I called a teacher by their first name and I was in such trouble, detention immediately. What kind of teenager were you? A bit troubled, um, but I was already writing even by then. I think that's the only thing I haven't felt confused about in my life is that yeah. I wanted to be a writer. So I was writing, I was reading. It feels like you weren't like a really boisterous, confident teenager, though. You've said in the past you you were anxious. Yes. How did yeah. you cope with being anxious? I was, yeah, I was always very anxious. And I think, I mean, at first you just assume everyone feels the way you do. And um, as I became a teenager, I began to realise, oh, I'm different from other people, which is the last thing you want to be as a a teenager. I realised, oh, I think I'm the only one who's measuring my legs every day because I'm worried I've got Robertson's giant limb. I don't think my friends... Are doing that. Robertson's, where did you even hear about I Robertson's? Mean, I spent a lot of time in the library and you can look up, you know, horrible illnesses that you might get. I mean, that is a sign of anxiety when you go into the library to find <laughs> new, new and terrifying things to worry about. Yeah, yeah. I was definitely an anxious child and going into teenagers because, like, for example, if there was a party... Mm-hmm or a disco, I noticed that other kids around me would look forward to it. Yeah. Weird. Yeah. Like anticipate it. Yeah. And go, on Friday night, we're all (laughs) going to go out and have a great time. Yeah. But to me, what am I going to wear? Yeah. When I get there, just say I get there a bit early and my friends aren't there. Yeah. Like that. Like, it's just. Is it still like that? (sighs) Yeah. 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 With the benefit of hindsight, what effect did having anxiety have on the shape of your teenagers? I think, you know, if you've got a good imagination, that feeds anxiety. So there was lots to worry about. But also, I think, you know, I was I was a puny weed and still am a puny weed. And so if you're at quite a rough school, you need to think, how can I defend myself? 
And so I guess that's where comedy became a, a kind of tool or a weapon. And I think anxiety is really helpful for comedy. I think you tend to be self-aware if you're an anxious person. You tend to be quite observant. As soon as you make someone laugh, they don't feel threatened. And that's mm. what's so brilliant about and powerful, I think, about comedy. And I, I love watching comedy, reading comedy, writing comedy. But I think people often underestimate how powerful it is. And I am I really feel that, you know, on TV, shows like The Cosby Show did more at the time for for black people than any number of petitions. You know, Roseanne did so much for working class people in America and Ellen and Will and Grace did so much for gay people. And I think, you know, when people have prejudice, if you make them laugh and they don't feel threatened and they feel, oh, I know these people and I like these people, you can really change people's minds about things. And that's a really important and incredible thing to be able to do. You can't have achieved everything in your career without absolutely working your arse off. (laughs) Did your parents encourage you to have jobs in your teens? Yeah, I think, you know, I... I uh, needed to earn money, and so I had jobs. I worked at, I had a sort of Saturday job when I was at school at Harrods, in Harrods Food Hall. Um, So that was um, fascinating. I mean, that's fancy. Yeah. I was on the charcuterie counter, so I used to come home with my pockets stuffed with pate. Work is only as good as the stuff you can rob. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. I, I I have that I think I have that instilled into me by my certain members of my family who will <laughs> remain nameless the work is only as good as the things yeah. that you can put into your pockets yeah. stolen patty must be the most delicious patty it's of all nothing better than a little mouthful of in the stock cupboard mouthful of hot stolen patty what I discovered <laughs> is if it's fizzy you'll be ill later <laughs> <laughs> to go from somebody that had no interest in food whatsoever to be someone on the front line <laughs> at Harrods, the creme de la creme of experts on fancy salami. Yeah, I know. I mean, did you know a lot about salami? I knew nothing, no. And everyone I served got little tiny shavings of my fingertips every time I gave anyone any cut meats. Um, <laughs> and I, it was quite sobering that people coming to my counter, their change was more than my weekly wage would be, sort of their change. And I remember one day a man coming in and we had a huge truffle in a jar and he said, how much that truffle? I said, 500 pounds. And he asked for it and he undid the thing and just took a big bite out of it like it was an apple and just stood there crunching this truffle while staring at me in some weird power move. (laughs) I'd never tasted truffle at that moment, but now I have. I imagine it wasn't that pleasant an experience. That's very succession. (laughs) It is, isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. 
Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Your early jobs included writing on Spitting Image and Have I Got News For You, Pen and Sketches for Ben Elton and Joe Brand, and even as a writer of a Ronnie Corbett monologue. Yeah. Which I just fills my heart with glee <laughs> thinking about that. So writer's rooms, we've all heard about them. This is the place where the magic happens, <laughs> where a few brilliant minds get together, they hammer out this script. And you've said that for years and years, you would be the only woman in mm. that room. Yeah. And so very few women made it in. What did it take to get into that room? I think it was persistence. I don't think it was, I've learned a lot. I don't think I was particularly talented, but I just wouldn't give up. <laughs> and and I just loved doing it. You know, I I loved all the male writers I work with. They're all fantastic. They're, you know, we're, we're brilliant friends and have known each other so long now. But it was, I worked in the business for 25 years before I was in a writer's room with another woman. And that was in the States. And it sounds so silly, but it was so incredible. It blew me away when I was in a room with other women because just to sit opposite people who look a bit like you and dress a bit like you and have similar frames of reference and similar life experience is so validating and exciting and confidence building. You were one of the writers on The Thick of It, a hit series that satirises the inner workings of the British government. Your brother is the Telegraph's political cartoonist, Matt. So it feels like the language of politics is in your family, an obsession with your family. Mm. There's lots of politics in your work, Spitting Image, Have I Got News For You, Season 3 of Succession. What do you think it is that you and your brother both see in this rich seam of what is it? That's a really good question. I think, I mean, he's great at writing about it and understanding politics. I didn't mean to. (laughs) And I remember when Armando asked me to write on the thick of it and I was so nervous and so excited And I turned up on the first day and we used to film in this abandoned office building in the middle of nowhere. And he said to me, so this episode is in, there's an inquiry happening. And the vibe I'm looking for is less Chilcot, more Leveson. And I just had (laughs) rabbits in headlights (laughs) look because I just thought I have no idea what he's talking about because I'm not. I'm not as interested as my family or my brother in politics. Yeah. You know, I thought Chilcot was a lovely spa that I wanted to go to. I, uh, and you see, I, I know exactly what he's saying yeah, there. Yeah, you I, should I, have yeah. been there. Yeah, and but I just, I'm not saying that I would, could have written it. 
But yeah, he's saying, because Chill got quite uptight, but Levinson right. got a little bit relaxed and groovy right. with celebrities coming in, didn't right. they? Right, yeah. I mean, I don't know because I hadn't been paying attention. So I had that moment of panic where I literally was looking out the window thinking, shall I just run and start running? Because I just have no idea. And, and there was no Wi-Fi. You couldn't, I couldn't Google, what the hell is he talking about? And then I sort of thought, right, calm down. You understand the word inquiry. Mm-hmm. You know the characters. You know that they would be very scared by an inquiry. You are feeling scared now. Channel the feelings of fear. And also, you know, I've always... I love dialogue and I think that you get to a character's truth when you're writing them lying. So I thought, well, they would all be lying. So I'll just write, I know they're going to be asked questions, they're going to lie and I'll write that. And so even though my grasp of it and my limited brain power was pretty low, I I just focused on the characters and got through it. It feels like... Yes, you're interested in politics, but it's the people behind. Yeah, exactly. That you love the most. Yeah. Look, we have to talk about succession. I've managed to not talk to you about succession, (laughs) even though from the moment we opened the front door, I wanted to (laughs) grab you by the ears. Start shouting at you about how much I love Succession. For those not aware, the series centres on the Roy family, a highly dysfunctional dynasty, the owners of a global media and entertainment conglomerate where everyone's fighting for control. (laughs) Essentially, it is awful people who are awfully rich doing awful things. As a writer on Succession, is food a useful tool to help us understand the sort of people that they are. Food is so key to my experience on succession in all kinds of ways. First of all, in the writer's room, which is in London, you know, I want lunch by about 10 to 11. The others, they treat food as just fuel. They'll just have a joyless soup at two. They don't care. So I just want you to be fully aware of the suffering I undergo in the writer's room. I'm kind of envisioning a slightly wilted sandwich platter. Not even a platter when we get a pret sandwich that we can choose. But apart from that, food, I think, is a brilliant key into that world. We did that episode of um, Tom and Greg eating songbirds under a (laughs) napkin. That was was incredible. And so as a restaurant critic, there's been two things in succession where I felt truly seen. Okay. And one was these two incredibly rich men eating rare songbirds with napkins on their faces (laughs) to hide the shame, which was some kind of, you know, ritual. Because that is true. I've often sat at dinner and had the... uh, had the cruelty of the dish explained to me. Yes, yes. As if it's yeah something to be proud of. <laughs> oh, have this small bird. In France, we drown them in honey. <laughs> and you've yeah. got to go, mm. Mm, Yeah. The second thing was the um, the wine that, oh, that, that yes. Shiv gives in, Tom. 
the Shiv, vineyard. Yeah. yeah. Shiv Shiv and Shiv and Tom with the vineyard where they've made natural wine. Yeah. And it's disgusting in every way. Yeah. But they're pretending that it's delicious yeah. even though it looks like urine. Yeah. I'm glad you felt that. I you know, when you're in a room full of mainly vegetarians having joyless soup and you've ordered the ham sandwich from Brett, I feel a bit like I should hang the napkin over my head. So that element of shame is definitely part of it. The wine, we're just filming season four. You'll be happy to hear the wine has been bottled and is being served. That will be coming in episode seven. And I remember when we started on Succession, it was the sort of core group with this group of sort of scruffy, shambolic comedy writers who'd all known each other for years. And there was some doubt felt in some quarters, could this bunch of bumbling idiots pull off a sort of glossy, high-end American drama? And in some ways, no, we couldn't because um, we had no idea what it was like to be rich. So in the very first season, I wrote an episode that was based around Thanksgiving and I, in my script, you know, I had um, lines like Marsha saying, you know, the turkey's ready or lunch is ready or who wants sprouts or something. I got in such trouble with this. They had to employ a rich consultant because we, as British writers, just the fact that someone was paying for our pret sandwich we'd reached giddy heights we'd never previously <laughs> dreamed of so this rich consultant gave me such a going over about this episode and he was like Marsha would not deign to say the word turkey or lunch she wouldn't even know where the kitchen was or the staff kitchen or the other kitchen or the spare kitchen she wouldn't serve and you know this is just terrible so I went off and did a rewrite and kind of put, you know, try to think what's the poshest thing I can think of. There's napkins with napkin rings and mm. maids in maids' uniforms are serving the food. And he was even more furious. And he was like, where the fuck did you get this idea? And I said, I don't know. I think either porn or racist Tom and Jerry episodes. <laughs> yeah. No, apparently you get, there's an agency of very handsome young men who wear chinos and polo shirts and they serve food and you would never have a napkin ring. That's trash. My world's falling apart right here. I thought the napkin rings were actually quite fancy. No, apparently not. I love how you communicate their wealth through when they move between their huge houses yeah. that they have no sentimentality for. Like these yeah. these houses, they're the most gorgeous places on earth. But every time they arrive, thousands of mm. thousands of pounds worth of food is there waiting. Yeah. yeah and it's often right. shown being scraped, scraped into bins. Off. That was a great episode. I know you're right, actually. Now I realise how much my obsession of food does come up because they had that big wastage in in when they're up at the Hamptons. And then one of my favourite scenes, there's a bit where Tom expresses his feelings to Logan through chicken. Yes. By eating the chicken off his plate. It's such a <laughs> radical act. <laughs> Just when that fork goes over <laughs> and you're like... All of the natural laws of succession yeah. have just been broken with yeah. that fork onto yeah. that chicken. Yeah. 
and that loss of innocence moment where Greg says it's not his favourite champagne and you just think, Greg, we've lost you. You've gone to the dark side. A huge part of your job is to dream up these rich, absolutely fully formed characters like Greg and Kendall and Shiv and Roman. How do you go about building a character that people actually believe in? And are you a big people watcher? I think I am. And I think my sort of favourite thing is dysfunction. Mm. The, the That special combo of dysfunction, comedy and tragedy. And I think what's been great in succession is being able to enjoy how complicated people are and you know we're used to in this country writing things that just a few few people watch and it's a niche uh niche sort of fan base and this feels like it's got much bigger than we ever could have dreamed is it scary it is yeah i think now writing it and knowing that people pay so much attention and and have such strong feelings of ownership over those characters. You know, you want to make sure you deliver something worthy of, of the characters and of their fans. You met your partner, Catherine, at a screening of one of your shows. You've been together for decades now. How important was food in the beginning of the relationship? She needed my help. She didn't understand food. She really, I went round and she thought beans on toast was an acceptable thing to offer me to eat. She was another one of those where of foods just fuel. What's the quickest, easiest way to, mm. so it was, and she does, did and still does beg me to stop talking about food quite often. Um, but I think she's come <sighs> to appreciate come to appreciate it more now during the pandemic we did get onto the whole takeaway thing quite heavily but she's you know she is fussy as an whereas i eat anything she doesn't eat fish or cheese oh that's wiped out she must be an amazing person because that's really very difficult combo it's the cheese i know and also it's i mean she's a maniac, isn't she? You can't say you don't like all cheese. That's There's so many different types of cheese. These days, you and Catherine, you live with your two sons in southwest London. How did parenthood affect eating? <laughs> when they were born, someone had told me you have to eat a lot of iron when you're breastfeeding. So I decided Catherine had to keep me 24-hour bacon sandwich, rolling bacon sandwich situation. And um, (laughs) so I used to eat bacon sandwiches while feeding them. And my older son, in fact, did. We had to take him to the doctor and they did find some quite a lot of crumbs in one of his ears. (laughs) (laughs) I don't even think that, I don't think that a bacon sandwich has a lot of iron in it. (laughs) Don't tell me that. I always think of it as a health health food. Bacon sandwich, yeah, health food. A bacon sandwich is not a health food. <laughs> this is devastating. Did you have any cravings when you were pregnant? I had cravings for sprinkly donuts, quite urgent ones, yeah. 
Are you talking about like so you've got like a plain ring glazed donut yeah. with some kind of iced with all pink, the sprinkling? Pink icing, it had to be. Last year you ran your first TV show, The Shrink Next Door, with Will Farrell and Paul Rudd. And you released your memoir, My Mess is a Bit of a Life. Earlier this year, Succession won loads of awards, including the Emmy for Outstanding Drama Series and the Golden Globe for Best Drama Television Series. What's next? (laughs) Just keep writing. Yeah, I love it. Always more stories I want to tell and characters I want to write about. Yeah, just more. You once said that the best piece of advice you were ever given was not to eat jelly before going to church. (laughs) (laughs) And in your book, you wrote that your dad said that there's no problem that can't be solved with a hearty meal. True. What nugget of food-related advice (laughs) do you want to pass on to the listeners? I mean, the jelly one, I neither eat jelly nor go to church, but I still remember it to this day in case either of those things should happen. You know, I think it's going to be what we discussed earlier, that if the pate is fizzy, don't eat it. (laughs) Not even if it's really expensive. Even then, trust me, this is this is a piece of wisdom I've learned from bitter experience. How quickly would you know from eating the fizzy pattern <laughs> that you've made a huge error? I would say within an hour, things will be shooting out of your body from various places with no without your say so. So beautiful. <laughs> it's really profound. <laughs> Thank you. Georgia Pritchett, thank you so much for comfort eating with me. Thank you very much. This episode of Comfort Eating was produced by Jack Claremont. The executive producer is Lucy Greenwell. The music was written by Axel Kakutier. Mixing and sound design was by Alice Boyd. If you like comfort eating, then please go and leave us a review and you can follow or subscribe so that you never miss an episode. And use the hashtag comforteatingpod to get in touch about the podcast or share your own comfort eating delights. This is The Guardian. 